Welcome to the Dispatch Podcast. I'm your host, Sarah Isger, joined by Steve Hayes. And this week, we are talking to Congressman Dan Newhouse. He represents Washington State's 4th District, kind of in the middle there, not Seattle, not the eastern side. Uh, And he has been one of the Republicans to vote for the article of impeachment after January 6th, but also has put out uh, a, a pretty stark statement against the Biden administration's voting rights legislation, and we wanted to talk about some of that. Let's dive right in. Congressman, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you very much. And and let me just say, it's not only a pleasure to be with you, but I very much appreciate the distinction you make. Whenever I introduce myself and say I'm from Washington, of course, Washington State, I usually follow that up by saying not Seattle. So thanks for making that point. (laughs) (laughs) I think I've known enough people from Washington, not from Seattle, that they really like to Heisman that that part of the state sometimes. Um, I want to talk really right away about the voting rights legislation that's being proposed and why, I mean, let's talk big picture. Why is this something you don't support big picture? Oh my gosh. Um, So I hope you have a lot of time to talk about this. First of all, I think this is, uh, it's unconstitutional for one thing. And and that's a very basic thing. You know, the, the constitution leaves elections up to the states. This is a, a um, an effort by the Democrats to nationalize federal elections. And that's, um, you know, that anybody that, you know, takes an oath of office to uphold the Constitution just goes against that basic premise. Um, the Democrats continue to say that they're trying to um, uh, fix a system that, you know, we're, we are at risk of losing our democracy and, and lots of dramatic words like that that you hear over and over and over. I'm asking, okay, where is this problem that they're trying to fix? If you talk to Americans, and I've seen polls uh, taken over the last uh, year, 94% of Americans, Republicans, independents, even Democrats will tell you that it's easy to vote. There's no voter suppression going on in this country. So what are we trying to fix here? Um, so there's, there's um, not only is it doesn't make sense on its face, but like I said, the constitutional question is very, very concerning. I'm, uh, I can't, I can't um, uh, warn people enough about the the overreach of the federal government as it gets into the responsibilities and rights of individual states. Well, and let's set aside the constitutionality for a second, which I don't do lightly, by the way, but just from a policy perspective, there's lots of things that we have federalized in this country, if not um, with uh, precision that you must do X, at least a floor you must do no less than X. The federal government sets all sorts of stuff like that. So why not set a floor for voting? Because you mentioned, for instance, that voter suppression wasn't one of the top problems facing the country. I tend to agree with you there. But at the same time, voter fraud isn't one of the top problems facing the country. And a lot of the laws, Democrats say, being passed in Republican states right now are driven, A, by people who think that Donald Trump won the 2020 election, and B, by this idea that there was massive fraud in the 2020 election, and there's no real support for that either. Either way, yeah. So uh, let me first first respond, Sarah, by saying that I, I support voting rights. I think that it's uh, very important for us to make sure that every person who wants to and is eligible to vote has that ability to do that. Uh, I, think, I think that's probably something that both Democrats and Republicans share. And one of the things that came out of the 2020 election, I guess, that we should be paying attention to is that there is um, a concern by part, on the part of many people that the election wasn't fair. There was something uh, that uh, shouldn't have happened. Although, as you said, many of, the, many of those accusations were never, um, there was never found, founding for any of them. But the, still that, that uh, uh, perception exists. 
So I think it, it behooves us to make sure that um, we have in place systems that protect the the rights of individuals to vote and don't and don't go take any um, steps that would suppress those uh, ability to vote. Um, by setting minimums, sure, that's fine. But by what this legislation purports to do, is any changes to voting uh, in individual states has to go through a newly created position of an election czar, which interestingly, we're borrowing a word from the Russian language. But uh, and that, that to me is goes way beyond setting minimums. That, that is taking total control over the election system. And I just have a, a very uh, basic problem with that. Well, Washington has been a place where we've seen the kind of experimentation um, that federalism is supposed to allow to flourish uh, with uh, widespread mail-in balloting. This has been going on for, for a long time. Um, there were reforms after the 2004 gubernatorial race, um, which was decided um, in favor of Christine Gregoire by 133 votes. Uh, there was voter ID. Um, how is Washington's uh, voting process working today? And are there specific changes you would make to that and uh, to make the question longer and more difficult for you to answer? Um, how do you feel about mail-in balloting generally? So, um, you're right, Washington State has been a, really a leader in some of these things. And over the last 20 so, or so years, we've been making a lot, or even longer than that, we've been making a lot of uh, changes and adjustments. And, and uh, over time, I think we have a very, very good system. In fact, we had the, uh, <laughs> we had the distinction of the only um, statewide elected official on the West Coast in, was in the state of Washington, was our Secretary of State, who's, as you know, the responsibility of the elections. I think there's been widespread confidence in our system, but it didn't happen overnight. We did have some growing pains over the last couple of decades. And that was one of the things that I warned people about over the last couple of years, is you can't institute uh, all-male balloting, uh, all-male voting uh, in one election. It, it takes time to make sure that all of the precautions and necessary uh, think uh, systems are in place to to ensure um, that that the election is, is is secure, but we've been able to do that, and we've been able to do that because we have the ability to, and the in, in the the constitutional uh, right that we exercise to be able to decide what works best in our state. Is it perfect? Uh, probably not. Is any system perfect? You know, there are as you asked, are there some things that I would like to see changed? I think the, uh, the, uh, the ideas around the voter ID, making sure that people can uh, prove they are who they say they are, makes basic sense to me. I mean, you can't even check out a library book or, or buy a bottle of beer or, or, or name, name any easy function that people do every single day without some kind of an identification. I don't think voting should be any uh, less uh, secure than that. And so I'd like, that's one area that I think that we, we could put more strength into. And that's one thing that I would, I would say around the country makes a lot of sense to me. But um, uh, I, I, I have total confidence in our system in the state of Washington. Uh, and uh, I think that over time, the rest of the country could, could if they want, use the model of the state of Washington and, um, and follow along as well. But I don't think, going back to the constitutional issues, I don't think that this, that should be required through legislation by the U.S. Congress that every state will use the exact same system because it, it's not a one-size-fits-all um, situation. Uh, states are different. They have different needs, different situations. And so I, I, I think we need to leave uh, the decisions up to the state with some of those minimums. Absolutely. I don't have a problem with that, but not, not the full total control of the federal government. The, the Republican candidate for governor in, in 2020, uh, Lauren Culp, claimed that mail-in balloting was rife with fraud, um, you know, raised all sorts of objections to the outcome of that election. I wonder what you think of his objections, um, 
whether you think there's any merit to the claims that he made, particularly against the the Republican Secretary of State. And um, I understand he's um, <laughs> sort of interested in your seat these days. Um, what do you think about him as a as an opponent? So, um, yeah, he made. In fact, I think there was a lawsuit filed on the results of the election, but he he withdrew. I, I like I said, I think our um, the election was held fairly. We can have confidence in in the outcomes. Republican Secretary of State, and that we've had. I think that's the gosh third or fourth Republican Secretary of State we've had uh, in a row. Uh, I mean, that's been our our. Republican stronghold for many, many years. We have a lot of uh, Republican um, county ex um, uh, officials who oversee elections that uh, will will tell you that we have a very strong, secure system. Um, and so I, I, I think the election was fair. Um, I think the outcome we, we can have confidence in. Um, and I would hold up our system against anybody else's in the country. Um, Mr. Culp has, has uh, announced his intentions to run for Congress, which is an interesting thing. He doesn't live in the fourth district, but that's not a requirement. And as you know, um, so uh, looking forward to a spirited campaign and we'll see uh, how, how things go. But uh, I, um, so I'm, I don't, I don't have any comments otherwise, other than just looking forward to, to the a strong campaign. Let me, let me push you a, a little bit and see if I can get you to comment generally on, on, this phenomenon that we've seen, I think we've seen it at the national level. Certainly, I think you could argue that we've seen it um, at the state level uh, with Mr. Culp, where you have um, politicians who uh, are elected officials who make these extravagant claims of fraud. I think many of them untrue or exaggerated and then ride that to more political fundraising, um, greater political power. Um, it, it sure seems like that's what Donald Trump is doing today at the national level, despite the fact that, you know, almost literally every one of his claims has been either laughed out of court or dismissed after uh, a serious uh, assessment by um, by state and local election officials. And it seems like that's what uh, Mr. Culp is trying to do in Washington. He lost by more than half a million votes. And yet he's he's yeah, it wasn't close. And, and, and yet he's used that to help consolidate the conservative base in his favor. And, and unfortunately, too many people are believing these things. What do you do you know, as a candidate, as an elected official, to push back on, on claims like that? Yeah, I think that's, a, frankly, a, a disservice if you continue to pound that drum. There was election fraud. It was, the system was rigged that undermines people's confidence in, in our whole process. And, and if we don't have confidence in our, in our voting, then you know, what have we got? You know, there's, there's the whole foundation of our system begins to fall apart. So I, I have faith in the system in the state of Washington. Were there problems in other states that um, uh, would cause people to think that there was, that there was something that was happening that shouldn't be? That's why I supported uh, for President Trump's efforts in the courtroom. I think he needed to have available to him every, every legal option uh, that we have in order to prove otherwise. Um, there was almost 60, I think, or maybe over 60 cases that one way or another found that there was no uh, basis for, for the, uh, the complaints being made. You know, we had to make a decision in Congress, as you recall, whether or not to certify the electoral votes. I voted to certify because um, every single state has to tell Congress whether or not they had confidence in their own system. And guess what? They all did one way or the other. Every state told us that no, what we sent to you, Congress, the electoral votes we sent to you were legitimate. And so, um, I think that what we need to do going forward is, is make sure that uh, we can uh, say with confidence that these systems that we have in our country are something that we can depend on. And that's, that's why I'm, I'm concerned about the Democrats' efforts here to change um, uh, the system that we have to make it more federalized, to make 
make the, uh, uh, at least what they say, their talking points don't necessarily match what's in the legislation. And I don't know if you've noticed that or not, but the, um, you know, they talk about uh, mom in all of their speeches, invoking John Lewis and Martin Luther King in 1965 and all of the things that, you know, it's hard to argue against that, yes, we want to make sure that people have access and can exercise their right to vote. But if you look at the language of the bill, it doesn't necessarily match with, with what they're trying to, to tell us. And uh, I, I ask the question, well, where is the problem? If, like I said, there's confidence in this country, 94% of the people surveyed say it's, it's easy to vote. I think we had the highest turnout in something like 130 years in the 2020 election. So obviously people aren't being uh, stopped from exercising their right to vote. Um, uh, I, I just ask you, where, it, where are the issues uh, that they're trying to fix? And, and uh, by uh, increasing the, um, the, the requirements that we have for people to make, to make sure that they are who they say they are, that when they go into the voting booth or went to the voting place, that they can prove beyond a shadow of doubt who they are. I think that's totally legitimate. Otherwise, <clears throat> if, you can't, if you can't guarantee that, then people can go down to the next district or the next precinct and vote again. So we've got to be able to, to make sure that that's the case. And I, and I don't see anything that uh, is uh, going on in this country that would uh, uh, make, make our system less... Um, able to have confidence in it. So um, I, if, I, I hate to sound cynical here, but let me just tell you, I think what's going on about me. If you look throughout this last year, now we're going over a year, almost, uh, almost a year into the Biden administration. If you look around, there's so many different things happening that are, uh, we could, you could call crises. You know, look at the border. Look at the COVID issue. Look at look at inflation. I mean, look at the international issues that we are staring us in the face. Just so many things. The supply chain. I mean, you know, the list is long. But we're not focusing on that. We're, we're focusing on, or, or at least they are trying to make us focus on uh, something else to. Divert attention away from the true issues that we should be trying to solve, and I think that 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 right there um, says a lot. And, you know, they're they're faced in 2022 with a midterm election that, by all uh, all prognosticators, are saying does not look good for them. Well, I, I think, and not to sound too cynical, but I think realistically, they're trying to change the um, uh, the the potential outcome of this upcoming election by getting people to think about other things. I think you're in a unique position. It's why I mentioned it in the introduction. When we think about the president's speech that he delivered in Atlanta on Tuesday about this legislation, um, it was a it was a fiery speech. I would describe it as a very partisan speech. Um, Mitch McConnell obviously gave his reaction, saying that it was unpresidential. Uh, even Dick Durbin, the number two ranking Democrat in the Senate, said that uh, it probably went too far. Um, a lot of the speech was attacking Republicans, which, first of all, was kind of interesting, given that the the problem, at least most immediate to the president, is Democrats in his own party before you get to Republicans being his the, the roadblock here. But um, uh, he was attacking Republicans comparing them, obviously, to being on the side of Bull Connor, George Wallace, Jefferson Davis, and really lumping all Republicans in with those who stood with President Trump's claims about the election in the wake of November 2020. Um, you're one of the few Republicans who voted to certify the election results. You're also one of only 10 Republicans who voted in favor of the article of impeachment against a member, a sitting president of your own party in the wake of January 6th, you don't seem that into the partisan stuff on the Republican side. And yet 
you still don't support this legislation. And I'm wondering where you think your role is in speaking to the administration or Democrats in Congress to maybe explain um, what the problem is, because they think the only problem that you could have with this legislation, at least according to the president's speech, is that you think the election was stolen, but you don't, and yet you still oppose this legislation. Well, for the well, many of the reasons that I've already talked about, the constitutionality of, of the legislation. Um, but what can you do to lower the temperature, I guess? It feels like the president raised the temperature despite his inaugural address, by the way, um, and that this is really turning into a good versus evil fight. So I wish I could do that, Sarah. I'm not sure that I can, though, because of just what I was talking about, the uh, political atmosphere dynamic that we're in uh, with the 22 election, 2022 election uh, coming up very soon, and the uh, reading of the tea leaves on the part of the Democrats that it doesn't look good for them. Um, these are issues. Voting rights issues are something that truly um, energizes the base, right? And, and I think this is an effort, not to sound too cynical, but I think this is absolutely a big part of what's going on, is that this is an effort on the part of, the, of Mr. Biden uh, and others to do exactly that so that they can uh, minimize the damage that they potentially are going to uh, feel uh, coming up next November. Because like I said, the, the rhetoric that we hear, the floor speeches, the speech in Atlanta, all of those things do not match the, the substance of the bill. So what happens in 2022, in the wake of 2022, if Democrats then lose a bunch of House seats, lose control of the Senate, and say, see, we told you, the election rules were lit, rigged, this wasn't a fair election. And then what happens in 2024 when either party, whichever party doesn't win the presidency, says, no, see, the other side was trying to rig the election. Where does this go? I'm, I'm not feeling great about our direction here. So you're asking that as a concerned American citizen. I am. The basics yes. of, our, of our system. So, yeah, it's, it's on a, a course that is not particularly productive. So I think... If we can do this, and this is a challenge, not just for this particular issue, but for many things that we face in, this, in Washington, D.C., in our country and in the states. We've got to get back to working together on both sides of the aisle. And I don't mean to sound it to, so naive that I think that this is easy. It isn't. Uh, but I think that in order to instill confidence in our system, there's got to be an ability for both sides to be able to contribute to the solution. You, you've probably watched the uh, process that we went through this week on getting this, this legislation to the Senate. The, the bill that we voted on just yesterday, the voting rights legislation, was a, uh, an issue, or the bill itself had to do with leasing uh, provisions for NASA, the space agency, nothing to do with voting rights. All of the language that pertained to NASA was stricken and over 700 pages of, of cobbled together three or at least three different bills that had to do with voting rights were shoved into this bill and we voted on it. Um, uh, it went to rules on, let's see, on Wednesday and we voted on it on Thursday morning. I bet you not a single member of Congress knew exactly what was in that bill. Certainly generalities, but there's a lot of things. Well, what made it and what did it, didn't from those three different bills? Nobody really knows. I'm not even sure leadership knows. There's probably some staff members that do. But that doesn't matter. Like I said, the, the speeches that you heard, like, uh, you know, Republicans are all for Jim Crow and, and Democrats are all for mom and apple pie. And, and that's, oh, my gosh. Nothing could be further from the truth. Uh, um, and that's really unfortunate if the, if the goal is only to fire up your base so that you don't, you don't get shellacked in the next election or that you're victorious in the next election, then God help us. I, I, we, we can't continue to do that because this is too important. 
So I think I start, I'm starting to see some things happen in the Senate. There's a group of bipartisan, a bipartisan group of members that are, that are starting to look at things. Okay, what could we together agree on that may improve um, uh, voting in this country that would give confidence to the American people? Those conversations are starting to happen. And I think that that's, that's a really important thing. But the, the current process, well, I was just reading this morning in some of the, some of the clips, you know, the, uh, Senator Schumer is going to go forward with the vote. He's going to force the vote. He doesn't have enough uh, Democrat pass that. So they're going to, okay, then they're going to uh, tear down the filibusters. Uh, and, and he doesn't have enough votes to do that. So it's a really interesting dynamic we have going here that they're going to intentionally put up two things that are destined to fail to prove what? I'm not sure that Joe Biden is the weakest president we've had in 40 years. I'm not sure exactly what, what the goal is here. But um, th this, is not, this is not the way to do things. Since we're talking about the Senate, I want to ask about the filibuster just briefly. Obviously, you're a member of the House of Representatives. Y'all don't have a filibuster. Um, and yet the body is still standing. It is functional to the extent we call <laughs> Congress functional. Comparatively. <laughs> um, do you think the filibuster is actually important in the Senate? Is unlimited debate continuing to serve a real purpose, a positive purpose for the American people? I am becoming less convinced. You're becoming what? I'm becoming less convinced because what it just turns into is an ability for each side to showcase their hypocrisy on like lights and billboards each time the Senate switches, uh, you know, parties. You know, I'm starting to wonder about that too, but I remember when we were in the majority uh, and we didn't, you know, we, we passed all kinds of legislation from the House over to the Senate and they're just sat because same thing, they didn't have 60 votes. So many of my colleagues in the House, Republicans are saying, yeah, we got to get rid of that stupid rule in the, in the Senate. You know, we, we've got the majority, we should be able to pass it. said, guess what? Democrats who today are saying we need to get rid of the filibuster at that time, just three or four years ago, were saying, no, 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 this is so important. It protects the rights of the minority and we've got to continue to, you know, it's a tradition and it's constitutional, which I'm not sure that it is. And all, all of those things, it just flip-flops. The arguments are being made on both sides. <clears throat> so you wonder exactly. You can't, you, I think the one thing we have to remember here um, Joe Biden was not given a mandate in 2020. The House of Representatives were, were separated by, what, four or five votes. The Senate is a dead heat, 50-50. The only reason that Democrats are, are, are running the show is because the vice president can break the tie. So they, get, they uh, are uh, chairing all the committees and, and are in leadership. The American people have spoken. I think that they want this to be a, you know, there's no mandate given for all of the things that the Democrats are trying to do. So they're trying to force things through that I don't think they should be. I think they're overreaching what their perceived uh, uh, message was from the American people. So whether the Senate gets rid of it or not, okay, um, you're still going to have the same dynamic. Right, it's still going to one senator is still going to be able to uh, control things. Joe Manchin is the most powerful man in Washington D.C. Arguably, uh, who's the president? President Manchin is that who we should be calling him? Maybe um, I, 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 I don't know if it's going to uh, you know immediate in, in the immediate future. You know, they'll be able to maybe pass some of the things that they want to, um, but I think. It, when the dust settles, it's gonna, you're going to end up with a very similar dynamic. I want to talk about the, the politics um, of some of the political changes that we've seen in, in the past, really in the past couple of years, but, but going back a lot further. We've seen this pronounced shift in rural voters toward the Republican Party. Um, Reed Wilson writes, uh, writes for The Hill wrote that in 2016, 592 counties shifted at least 20 points toward the Republican presidential nominee. And of those counties, 387 had populations under 
thousand. Uh, you chair the Congressional Western Caucus, described as the voice for rural America. What do you think accounts for this shift? Um, you know, I was just thinking the other day when um, when I was much younger, I came to uh, President Reagan's first inauguration which was a, uh, not my first visit to Washington, D.C., but one of my first visits. And at that time, um, or in that period of time, this, if you looked at all the state legislatures in the country, there was, there was one point in time where the number of Democrats and the number of Republicans was exactly the same. That's changed dramatically since then. But... Uh, um, I only say that to illustrate that we have changed. We, you know, things are changing in this country, and there's a lot of uh, a, a lot of us in rural America are are becoming increasingly concerned about the direction of the federal government and the and the growth of the federal government. You know, maybe there's a um, a commonality to people that live in rural areas. You, you know, there's not that we're trying to get off the grid and all that kind of things. Although there may be some. But um, sometimes we joke from the state of Washington that there's, there's good things and bad things about being 3,000 miles away from Washington, D.C. <laughs> but, but I think there's truly a concern about uh, overreach, about um, a centralized authority, uh, less local uh, control, uh, you know, decisions made by bureaucrats 3,000 miles away don't always match with what people in, uh, uh, who are on the ground that live in the, in the area uh, understand need, to, need to, to happen or what the solution should be. Um, there's a sense, a growing sense, that people in Washington, D.C. are not connected to the people in the rest of the country. Um, so... Um, and that's that's something I think that we need to listen to. We need to we need to hear that message. We need to be much more responsive uh, as a whole. I'm not saying that I haven't been responsive. I think I have been. But the, as a whole, the the institutions don't have a lot of confidence by the American people. Every institution you look, I think they. I just heard the other day the the, the one uh, in this country institution that has the most confidence is the military and that's only at about 50 percent uh you know members of congress are somewhere down there with uh, i don't know head lice and hemorrhoids uh, you know it's, and still and still above journalists <laughs> <laughs> i wasn't going to say that but you know, okay it's all right we can take it we can take it <laughs> let me let me follow up because i i'm, I'm struck by i mean as i think about this um you know i wonder how often you see the issues that are sort of most hotly discussed and debated in Washington and in the national media, how often those issues overlap with the, the primary concerns of your constituents and of the other members of, of um, the Western Caucus. If you look, I was on the website um, just preparing to, to talk to you today. And, and if you look at the issues that, that you have listed on the Congressional Western Caucus website, I'm struck by how many of them get no discussion, get no debate in the national media. I mean, I think really two have been getting any coverage at all. You have agriculture, American Energy Security, Congressional Review Act, Economy and Jobs, of course, that gets attention, Endangered Species Act and Wildlife, Federal Land Management, Green New Deal. Okay, we've had a debate about that. Healthy forests, local control and states' rights, property rights, multiple use. I mean, all of these things that are sort of the, 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 the lifeblood, the things that matter most to, to your constituents aren't even getting discussed in, in the broader national debate. Yeah, and that's a, that's a really frustrating thing. Um, like I said earlier, the, here we are uh, with so many things facing serious issues that we face in this country, right? Um, the supply chain issue, which is not going away anytime soon, unfortunately. Inflation, highest it's been in 40 years. Oh my gosh, the, the COVID uh, issues that we continue to uh, struggle with. Um, 
our border crisis, which it hasn't been in the news, guys, lately, just saying, but it's ongoing. It continues. Thousands of people continue to come over our border, bringing, you know, drugs and all kinds of things. But uh, all, all of these things happening, and what are we talking about? voting rights, uh, and, and in a way that uh, is, I'm not sure is the most productive. So uh, that's a, that, that's a very frustrating thing. You know, what can I say about that? I'm not in the majority party, so I don't determine the agenda. I, you know, I wish I could tell you that, oh, yeah, we're going to, we're going to hear my priorities or the Republican priorities. Uh, uh, we're going to be hearing those in committees and voting on on those things on the floor, but that's you know that's not the case. I don't. We're not in charge. Of, we're not driving the train here. Uh, that's going to change in November. I have confidence in. Um, you know, I've I've often said that um, a, a divided government actually works better than one when you have one party in control. And, and what do we have today? The White House. The Senate and the House are all controlled by one party. And if you, what can you really look at over the last 12 months uh, of things that uh, my colleagues on the other side of the aisle can say they've accomplished? I think there's a very compelling case that divided government, at least in the modern era, has been more productive. But speaking of that, uh, if Republicans take back the House in 2022, what are things that you actually think Congress, a Republican Congress can get done with the Biden administration because just hearing what, you know, wannabe future speaker Kevin McCarthy says, it kind of sounds like Republicans in Congress just want to investigate the Biden administration if they take back the House. Is there actual legislation that you think can get buy-in from Republicans and from a Joe Biden White House? Well, I certainly hope so. And I I saw those comments and I, and, uh, I need to have a conversation with Mr. McCarthy, I, but I I do believe that we can get some things done with the Biden administration. Like At least I hope so, because he he told us in his uh, inaugural address uh, many things that would lead us to believe that he's looking uh, forward to, or at least at that time, to solving uh, problems that the country faces in a bipartisan way. He gets into office and he's led the other direction by those around him. I think Mr. Biden is a pragmatic enough person to to see if he wants to accomplish anything, uh, he's going to have to work with the with both parties. And the, that's what that was his senatorial record. Uh, we have yet to see that in his in his presidential career. But uh, I, I think if that is the re, the re, uh, reality, and, uh, we have. Uh, ample opportunities to get things done when we take over. It seems like there's another problem facing Republicans, one that Democrats are dealing with right now, as you alluded to, which is intra-party fighting. Republicans have been given a gift, it seems to me, a respite over the last year to allow, you know, Democrats in chaos to dominate the headlines, if you will. But if Republicans take over the House, I think we're going to put Republican infighting back at the fore. There are a lot of different uh, factions of the Republican Party might be the most generous way to put it. Are the different parts of the Republican Party going to be able to work together? Do they even still consider themselves? Are you in the same political party as a Marjorie Taylor Greene, a Matt Gates, uh, Lauren Boebert? So um, I think I think Republicans, you know, we've been we've been through this before, right? Uh, when when we took control the last time, and we, uh, uh, honestly, we did have some issues of of, um, of trying to get together within our conference on the directions we wanted to take. I think we're smarter because of that. We we understand the challenges. I think there's a lot of things that we can accomplish together because of the, we don't want to repeat the mistakes of the past, just like you're talking about. So I I think we will be able to absolutely uh, come together and uh, focus on those things that we can't agree on. You know, we're, we're a big tent party. There's a lot of different ideas, a lot of, a lot of opinions on, on, on different things, but there's an awful lot of things that we do agree on. I can, and, and I think it feels I like can, there's people in the corner of your tent lighting small fires and then pouring gasoline on it though. Well, that'll be, 
and that's the case in the Democrat side too. But I think we, I, I'm optimistic enough to think that we can, we can manage the, um, uh, the ideas and the priorities of everyone to a point where we can move forward on those things that we do agree on. And I was just going to say, uh, I can point to the uh, Western Caucus, which thank you for, for bringing that, that up. It's a great group of individuals in Congress that work towards a common goal, all Republican this year. And we are able to come together on many, many things that we all agree on. Ms. Bober is a part of that. And, and we work together very well on many of these things that we have in common. And I think, I, I think leadership in a Republican conference understands that. I hope they, and I hope they do that uh, certainly we have differences, but there's a lot of things that we have in common and that we owe it to the American people to focus on, on those things so that we can move forward on with solutions. Would you support stripping um, committee positions from Democrats that you find objectionable? Um, hmm. As the Democrats I, have done to Republicans that they yeah, find objectionable, see, to be clear to a, listeners? I'm very concerned about the the precedent that's been set here recently about leadership from one party dictating to another party who's going to be sitting on committees. I, very I did not support that. Um, um, Ms. Pelosi taking those actions. Um, and, and I think that the danger is real for us to spiral down uh, that same path be, because of of what has happened. I'm, so I'm gonna look very, very carefully at, at that. Um, if there are situations, and there, you know, there have been in the past, not just in the past year, but over the, over the several decades where there, sometimes there are individuals that certainly have, um, through their actions and words, have, uh, would merit re removing committee from committees, and from, even from the body itself. So I think in each case has to be looked at individually and on its own merits. But I truly think that that is a very dangerous um, a precedent to have been set, and, and I'm very concerned about that. Uh, you know, the obvious obvious sort of exit question for you, Congressman, is um, is your vote uh, to impeach the president? Uh, I've, I've I've seen you. Talk about it before. I've heard what you said. I guess I'm interested, rather than just rehashing that, um, in an understanding of, of a couple of different things. One, just on a personal level, what the reaction has been like for you. What what you've heard from constituents. You were you know you were censured by by a county party. You've been criticized by by other county parties in, in your district. So I'd be interested in your sort of personal reflection on what that vote brought on, uh, number one. And number two, how much of how you voted is a reflection of how you think about representation? Um, you know, in those critiques that you got from these county parties, many of them said in effect, hey, that's not where your voters are. You can't defy the will of the voters. And it seems pretty clear that that you had a different idea about what representation means. That I'd just like to get your your thoughts about that. So, um, gosh, it's been across the board. Certainly, there are those that um, are, disagree with my vote, hundred percent, and feel I betrayed the president. And um, likely, there, um, you know, they'll probably never be in my column going forward. Um, but, I, but I also have a lot of people who have come up to me and said, you know, didn't agree with the vote. Uh, not something I probably would have done, but you know what? You've taken thousands of votes that I do agree with. I, I you know, I still support you. I, I think you've done a good job. And then there are others, and it's kind of three different camps. Here. Uh, there are others that come up to me and, and almost with tears in their eyes, thank me for for voting the way I did. So <clears throat> I guess it remains to be seen, uh, the numbers in each of those camps. We'll, we'll find out that in November. But um, so that's that's been a, 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 a very, it's been a difficult year to tell you the truth uh, in a lot of ways. Um, but um, be, because of, you know, I came to the point where 
I, I couldn't vote any other way. I, I didn't know what necessarily a vote of conscience was up until last year. You know, I've certainly heard the term for a long time uh, and maybe had some ideas about it, but there are some times that the decision is put in front of you that it may, you know, how do you know what the will of the people, I, I cannot have, none of us have the, the luxury of taking a straw poll of every single constituent and asking them what, you're, what, you, what would you like me to do on this? I knew full well that I was going to upset some people um, uh, by, by that vote. Um, but in the end, uh, I had to do what I felt was the right thing to do. And what, what, uh, what standing up for the Constitution, in, in my estimation, was way more important than Dan Newhouse's individual political future. Um, and so... You know, the voters will tell us, but I, I, I got to tell you the, the reaction overall, um, although I get a lot of negatives still, overall has been positive. And can I just ask real quick follow-up on that? We've talked to some of your colleagues who cast the same vote that you did. And one of the things that struck us is um, their reports that a number of colleagues who didn't vote the same way have come up and sort of quietly said, I'd love to have been with you, um, but I but I couldn't either because they don't put, you know, th their their conscience ahead of their electoral prospects, or in some cases, I think genuinely were afraid about the reaction. Um, have you had that similar experience where you've had colleagues come up and say, "I wish I could have done what what you did." I absolutely have. Um, immediately after the vote, in the in several days following, I. I numerous people come up to me and say, yeah, I was almost there. I just couldn't do it. Um, and, and I'm you know, not judging anybody. Everybody has to vote the, the way that they see fit. But you, you got to know that this decision on my part and, and the other nine people that did the same thing you know, was not made in a vacuum. I fully understood the, uh, the reaction I could anticipate from this vote. I got to think that uh, those of uh, those people that said they, they wish they could have voted that way made that same calculation and decided they didn't want to face the um, uh, reaction from angry, uh, angry constituents. Um, but like I said, it balances somewhat. On the other hand, I have had not just Democrats, which you would expect to be appreciative, but a lot of Republican people have come up to me and, uh, thanked me for my vote. So, um, and I, you know, I understand, I understand the, uh, the anger and the disagreement. Like, and I respect that. Uh, um, but, you know, we were there, we were there that day. Uh, it was a, it was a very uh, personal thing. And, and even more important than that, we witnessed firsthand the threat um, to to uh, the center of our government. And uh, like I said, I needed to make a vote of conscience. It's, it's this face that I have to look at every day. And um, like I said, it was a way more important vote than my, my political future. I think the standing up for the Constitution has to... Um, uh, take precedence over over other considerations that uh, that go into our our determination of how we're going to vote. So. All right, last question. Your bio says that you are a third generation Yakima Valley farmer. I'm wondering if you can share with us your favorite recipe that you use for something that you grow yourself. <laughs> so. Um, so just for a little context there, I'm a hop farmer. And as you know, 99.9% .9 of hops go into one product, and that's beer. <laughs> uh, but are you making your own beer? Well, my interestingly, my son and I have done some of that. So I guess the uh, answer would be yes. Uh, and uh, I am a, 
you know, got to support the industry yet. So I do enjoy a glass of beer now and then. So I would, that would probably have to be the answer to that question that using, using hops and, and, uh, uh, and beer, but we also raise fruit. We raise wine grapes, uh, cherries, pears, different things. Um, but not to make this all about alcohol because that's a lot of the, uh, <laughs> but, but uh, products that are produced from those things. But, you know, um, we used to raise a lot of apples too. I, I enjoy apples all the time, every day. So we can um, make those alcoholic also. I love cider. <laughs> <laughs> I can see where you're headed with all that. Sure, uh, you certainly can. But, uh, and like I was joking about earlier, uh, best use of cherries, I think, or at least one of the better ones is in, in a great Manhattan. So there you go. This is how my husband and I have, have really found each other in marriage is that he likes ordering Manhattans and I will always steal the cherry and eat it because it's delicious. And I feel like that's my contribution. Very symbiotic relationship. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, thank you, Congressman, so much for your time, for sharing your thoughts on this, what's going on in Congress uh, and maybe what we have to look forward to or not look forward to depending on the topic and perspective. Appreciate it. Appreciate that. And, and don't give up hope. I, I could sense that in your voice sometime. You know, I'm, I'm a very optimistic person. It's going to take a lot of work on the part of all of us. It really will. But uh, I think if we do that work, we, we still, as a, as a country, as the United States of America, we do have a bright future. And, uh, but it's not a time where we can, anybody can afford to sit on the sidelines. We have to be engaged and part of the discussion and I appreciate your, you guys helping to uh, make that happen. I love ending on that note. Thank you, Congressman. Thank you. Take a quick break to hear from Aura. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. And I'll tell you, not only have I given this picture frame to all the moms in my life, but I'm an only child and it's been really fun to see my friends with siblings give this frame to their moms and it turned into a passive aggressive war to see which siblings can upload more pictures of their children. The Aura app is so easy. You can sit there at the end of the day while you're watching TV and just upload a couple pictures from the day and really show your brother-in-law who's boss. From grandmothers to new mothers, aunts, and even the friends in your life, every mom loves an Aura frame. Named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah favorite things, Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. Right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code DISPATCH at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply.